God is the one who says himself, I bring calamity. And if God brings calamity, then calamity coming from his hand is a good thing. great compassionate purpose of God in her life through her affliction was to bring forth that which would have never been born out of a life of ease and comfort. Look with me at the words. This is a longer quote, but this is worth reading through. The words of J.C. Ryle from many years ago. This Canaanite mother, no doubt, had been severely tried. She had seen her darling child vexed with the devil and been unable to relieve her. But yet that trouble brought her to Christ and taught her to pray. Without it, she might have lived and died in careless ignorance and never seen Jesus at all. Surely it was good for her that she was afflicted. Let us mark this well. There is nothing which shows our ignorance so much as our impatience under trouble. We forget that every cross is a message from God and intended to do us good in the end. Trials are intended to make us think, to wean us from the world, to send us to the Bible, to drive us to our knees. Health is a good thing, but sickness is far better if it leads us to God. Prosperity is a great mercy, but adversity is a greater one if it brings us to Christ. Anything, anything is better than living in carelessness and dying in sin. Anything is better than living in carelessness and dying in sin. Better a thousand times be afflicted like the Canaanite mother and like her to flee to Christ than to live at ease like the rich fool and die at last without Christ and without hope. We must believe that, brothers and sisters. We must believe that to the core of our being. Anything is better than dying in our sin. A life filled with nothing but the greatest afflictions, a life devoid of all ease, a life devoid of all earthly blessings from the Lord, a life which we could say, surely the Lord did not favor this life. Anything is better than stepping into eternity unprepared for that eternity. A life of hideous affliction is better than that if that affliction combines together with the hearing of Jesus to form within our heart true and saving faith. Look at the words of Paul On the next page, Philippians chapter 3, when he looks at all of the blessings, the earthly accomplishments, the earthly blessings of his life, and he says, all the gain that I had, I count all of that as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. I look at all all those things and I count them all as rubbish because they were a detriment, they were a hindrance to my knowing Christ, my Lord. We see this all throughout Scripture, don't we? We see in the pages of Scripture so many countless examples of how God will use affliction in the lives of people to join together with the hearing of His Word to either bring the lost sinner to Christ 
or to take the believer and move them along the path of sanctification and growth in Christ. We see this so many places in the Bible, don't we? We think about the story of Joseph being cast into the pit, sold as a, as a slave, put in, th- thrown into prison. We think of Jonah and the fish and the belly of the fish. We think of Job scratching his skin until it's raw and bleeding. We think of Ruth, Ruth who lost everything. She lost her husband. She lost her family. She lost her home. She lost her culture. The only thing Ruth had was a mother-in-law that said that she didn't even want her anyway. We think of the stories of Jeremiah cast into the pit. We think of Abraham. Abraham, can you imagine that furnace? The furnace of Abraham's life when the Lord God said to him, Abraham, take that son that you love with all of your heart, take him to the top of the mountain, plunge your knife into him and burn his body. We think of the stories of people like Rahab who lost everything. Or we think of the story of the Apostle Paul as we just read from his words in Philippians chapter 3. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 who gives us this litany list of this list of all these things of the beatings, the stonings, the, the, the beatings with rods, the uh, imprisonments, the, the hunger, the cold, the shipwreck, all these sorts of things. In the words of John Piper, John Piper says, if God's love for his children is to be measured by our health, wealth, and comfort in this life, then God hated the Apostle Paul. So we see God use again and again and again affliction in the lives of those in the pages of Scripture. And he uses it for the purposes of either bringing the lost sinner to know Christ or taking the believer who knows Christ's and weaning from them Remaining sin, remaining love for the world, remaining spiritual dullness. So that's what we want to turn to now. We want to just reflect for just a few minutes on how God uses affliction. But before we do that, just let's just recognize, first of all, that God's not the only one that uses affliction. We could, we could put it either way. We could say sin or we could say Satan. Sin within us, the sin remaining in us, or Satan, our enemy. They will also use affliction in our lives, but they use affliction in a very different way. Look at Psalm 34 and verse 21. Affliction will slay the wicked. Affliction will slay the wicked. Why will affliction slay the wicked? Because the wicked experience affliction and they do one of two things. They might pray and ask God to remove the affliction from them. And when God doesn't do that, then it hardens their heart and they use that as justification to justify their failure to believe and their failure to, to yield. Or, so they either do that, they ask God, they, they look at their lives and they, they want their lives to be more full of earthly blessing and less full of earthly uh, unblessing or discontentment or, or pain or suffering. And they ask God for that and God doesn't bless them in earthly ways like they desire and they use that as justification for unbelief. Or... They look at all of the affliction in the world, all the suffering in the world, and they lay all of that at God's feet and they use that as justification for unbelief. So either way, sin within our heart and our enemy Satan, they use affliction to destroy the wicked, to slay the wicked because that affliction is what's used to justify unbelief and hatred of God. It's like the soil. Remember the shallow soil as we were back in uh, chapter 4, looking at that parable of Jesus, the parable of the soils. And we talked about how all four of those, when the, when the plant springs up, all, all three times that the plant springs up, it's always a, a metaphor of faith that makes a profession of belief. 
So when the plant springs up, it's like the profession of belief. And what always happens right after that? The sun comes up. The plant professes belief. The sun comes up. The sun of affliction, the sun, of, the sun S-U-N, of trials comes up. And the shallow soil, that plant then dies. And we said very, specific, very, very specifically then that the cause of the death of the plant was not the sun. The cause of the death of the plant was the lack of soil. It was just the sun that brought that out. And so in the same way, this is the same sort of truth, that the sun of affliction and pressure from the world and suffering and discontentment and dissatisfaction and trials, all of that comes to all people. And for the wicked, that ends up in their destruction or their undoing. But now let's look at God's purpose in affliction or at least some of God's purposes in affliction. So first of all, just recognize with me that God is the God who brings calamity. The sun of affliction comes up because God makes that sun come up. We read in Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 7, God says this, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I create calamity. I am the Lord and I do all these things. So we don't do any sort of gymnastics with the word. We don't play any sort of tricks with the word. And we don't, we don't try to make the scriptures say what so often we as Christians want the scriptures to say, which is to say, to relieve God of the burden of being seen as the one who brings affliction to our life. We don't do that. We don't look at the word and ask the scriptures to relieve God of the responsibility of bringing affliction to our life when the scriptures themselves say that God does this. He is the one that brings calamity. He is the one that brings affliction. Now, sometimes we might say, well, we're not sure if God is the one who brings that affliction or God is the one who allows the affliction to come to us. Right? It's like the question about Job, where where Satan is the one bringing the affliction, but it was God himself who said, hey, have you ever thought about my servant Job? So either way, God is sovereign over his universe. Nothing happens in his universe outside of his control. So if affliction comes to us, it is God who is ultimately behind that. And so God is the one who says himself, I bring calamity. And if God brings calamity, then calamity coming from his hand is a good thing. It is a necessary thing and it is a good thing Because we're told, for example, in places like James 1 and verse 17, every good gift comes from God. And so if God brings the calamity into our life, it is a blessing from His hand. It is a thing that He uses. It is a tool that is useful for Him, for His glory, and for our benefit. I think back to Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. That's a powerful passage to me. Because in that passage, Paul says this, For it has been granted... And you might remember about three years ago when we were in Philippians, we looked at that word and we saw that that's the word ekariste. And you can even hear in that word ekariste, you can hear charis. Anybody know what the Greek word charis is? It's the word for grace. And so Paul literally says, God has graced you. And what has he graced you with? Two things he says, belief in his name and suffering. God has graced you with suffering. For his name. God has gifted you. He has granted to you. He has blessed you 
with this blessing of belief in his name and suffering for his sake. Now look with me at Job chapter 36 and verse 15. This is a powerful verse of scripture. He delivers the afflicted by their affliction. And he opens their ear by adversity. Now we'll get to the second half of that a little bit later in the message. But the first half of that, he delivers the afflicted by their affliction. It doesn't say he delivers the afflicted from their affliction. He delivers the afflicted by their affliction. How can God deliver the afflicted by their affliction? How does God do that? What does that even mean? How do you make sense of that? How do you deliver afflicted from their affliction by their affliction? The only way that makes sense, the only way that makes sense is this. The affliction that he delivers the afflicted from is worse than what he delivers them from. Let me say that a little bit more clearly because I didn't quite say that clearly. What he delivers them from is worse than the affliction that he uses to deliver them with. That was a little clearer, wasn't it? You can follow what I was saying there. What he delivers them from is worse than the affliction that he uses to deliver them. That's the only way that makes sense. For the afflicted to be delivered by their affliction means that the affliction is delivering them some from something far worse than they would have ended up with if God hadn't delivered them by means of their affliction. And so that's what we're going to look at. How God delivers us. And He delivers us with afflictions that are far, far better than what He delivers us from. This woman comes to Jesus in a desperate state. And all of us recognize desperation, don't we? Don't you recognize desperation in your life? You've been desperate. You've been desperate for something, for some answered prayer, for some deliverance. Desperation is a powerful thing. Desperation can cause us to do things that we wouldn't normally be able to do. We've all heard the stories, haven't we, of of the wreck on the side of the highway and the guy that lifts the car off, the person pinned underneath. Or we've heard stories of how people might act in situations of combat or situations of life-threatening situations. And the truth is, the reality is, is that desperation is a powerful, powerful thing. And so for that, we are tremendously grateful that the tool of desperation is in the hands of such a good God. Can you imagine the power of desperation if it weren't being used by God for what He promises are good purposes? Can you imagine the destructiveness of desperation when it's being used by those who hate you or those who are opposed to you? But we're so thankful that God will use desperation like in the woman's life Like in your life, like in mine, He will use desperation, but He will use it by His good hands, His gracious, loving, wise hands, and He will use it for our good. 